what's going on guys welcome back to the monkey finance youtube channel and uh, welcome to my podcast listeners as well uh, we're going to be diving into here uh, episode four of the beginner series uh, where i show you a portfolio that i started with zero dollars how i uh, contribute to it every single week so i'll update you on the performance of the portfolio and then I'll kind of touch on some topics that are on my mind for the week. This week, I'm really excited. I'm going to be uh, kind of sharing with you my opinions about the rotation from growth into value, something that I've been harping on for about the past six months now. I think we've seen a lot of evidence in the market that this has started to occur. Uh, and then I'm also going to talk to you about evidence-based investing. I recently was listening to the Rational Reminder podcast. Um, if you guys don't know, it's probably my favorite podcast uh, that I listen to every single week. Uh, ben Felix is one of the hosts on that podcast, somebody that I have a lot of respect for. And they mentioned on that podcast about an article about evidence-based investing is a Forbes article written by Adam Eagleston. And I had to uh, basically get into the article. I read the article and then uh, I had some strong opinions after reading it. So I'm going to share that with you guys as well. All right. So Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the M1 Finance portfolio. We'll do the quick update and then we'll move on with the rest of the show. So again, this portfolio that I created really uh, was something that I created based off a lot of the research that I was doing. It's essentially a Boglehead portfolio mixed in with a factor portfolio. So what I have is three different funds. I have VTI, which is the total U.S. stock market. I have VTVW, which is the U.S. small cap value fund. And then I have VXUS, which is the total international stock market. So these two right here, uh, this will be the Boglehead approach. Uh, this one right here would be the factor investing approach. So I kind of mixed or morphed two different investing theories into one. And we're going to see how well this uh, performs. Since I'm staking almost, I would say... 60% uh, of my overall portfolio in this strategy. So uh, hopefully it does work out for me because if it doesn't, I'm here on YouTube to tell you that I made a mistake, but uh, so far so good. So here we are. Uh, remember last week, everything was in the red. Well, this week, uh, what a difference a week makes, if you will. Look at this. Everything is in the green for the week. We're up 4.81% uh, in VTI for a total gain of $5.62. VTVW, the small cap value is up 9 0.14%. That's amazing. Total gain there is $3.53. And VXUS is up for the week 3% for a total gain of $1.19. Of course, guys, the total value of this portfolio is only $212.61. So while you might see a 9.14% gain, that's not really a lot considering that's only 20% of my portfolio. So that's why it's only $3.53. And then uh, now looking at our all-time numbers, again, these were in the red. I think everything was in the red except the small cap value. Well, this time around, week later, everything is in the green. Sort of kind of tells you on why you need to be patient in the stock market. Everything does come back. Uh, we're up uh, all-time now for VTI 1.41%. Small cap value is up 12.67% all time. So basically for the month and one week I've been invested. Um, very good returns for small cap value in the past month. And total internationals up as well, 0.68%. All right, so I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the shift between 
growth in value. I think back in September of 2020 was the first time on this channel uh, that I kind of turned bearish on large cap growth and on the technology sector. And I mentioned that I sold out of my FSPGX and my FTEC funds and that uh, I was going to start looking at small cap value. Now, back in September of 2020, I didn't really know what I know now. That was still, you know, I was still wrapping up the research. I hadn't drawn any conclusions from the research that I could say, um, you know, yes, this is the way I want to go. But more and more, I knew that as I was trying to um, prove to myself that large cap growth was the asset class to be in, uh, the evidence kept telling me it's not. But again, we're human and we, you know, we have emotions and we have biases. So you can take a look at a piece of evidence and you can kind of mold it around and make it fit your narrative, whatever your narrative is. So my narrative at the time was large cap growth. I was on board the tech train, riding the tech train all the way to the moon, even though trains don't go to the moon, they're on the rails. But you know what I mean? I was I was ready for tech to take me uh, and take me to the moon and, and basically help me retire a lot faster because how well it had performed. But all the evidence was telling me this is not the way to do it. So eventually I did give in to the evidence and I did get out of large cap growth and tech for a couple of reasons. Again, I've talked about, I don't want to belabor those reasons I've talked about in many videos what those reasons are if you want to watch those previous videos. But when I got out, I didn't time it 100% right, but I did time it pretty close because a couple of months later, the shift into value started or the rotation, if you will, into value started. So basically, I just want to compare for the last six months what has happened. So this is QQQ. This is the uh, NASDAQ 100 uh, index fund, if you will. So this tracks the 100 biggest companies in the NASDAQ. Um, this has returned so far in the last six months 15.58%. Um, and then now let's look up v, VTVW, which is the uh, Vanguard small cap that I'm invested in. If we take a look at the last six months, this has returned 62.02%. So it's fair to say the rotation has not only started, uh, the rotation's here. We're in the rotation. So again, my timing was... I don't want to say it was perfect, but it was almost as close to perfect as you can get. And by getting out of large cap growth on September 21st and starting to get into small cap value at that same time, I think my timing was impeccable. Um, I got a lot of resistance at the time because I was going against the narrative. The narrative was large cap growth was here to stay. Value investing's dead. What is even small cap value? What are you talking about? I got a lot of pushback and the reason I was able to stay the course the past six months, um, and now it's paid off, but the reason I was able to stay the course when I was going against whatever the public opinion was, was based off the evidence. The evidence showed me this is what happens long term. And I believe so much in the evidence that I was willing to go against the grain, against popular opinion, and, and take any heat for it because I knew long term I was doing the right thing. So that leads me to this article, this Forbes article. And the title of the article is Always Looking Back, Evidence-Based Investing Tells You What's Behind, Not What's Ahead. Whoo, we got a lot to unpack there. So Adam Eagleston is the um, author of this article. He is a Forbes council member, which is some kind of private membership fee-based community that uh, you have to have like an invitation to join. He is also the uh, chief investment officer for Formidable Asset Management. 
Um, so again, this guy has probably more credibility than me. So who am I as a YouTuber with a couple of thousand subscribers versus this young gentleman here who is not only a chief investment officer for a uh, asset management company, but he's also a Forbes uh, finance council member. So hey, that's just uh, just want to let you know ahead of time what we're dealing with here. So uh, if you guys remember, I don't know if, how young some of my viewers are, but if you guys remember, there was uh, back in the 80s or 90s, I don't remember now exactly when, but there were station wagons that had a, a third row. It was a jump seat. It was facing out of the rear window. So everybody else was facing the front of the road. Uh, if you're sitting in the third row jump seat, you're facing the back of the road. So you could see the oncoming cars behind you. So what what the author is saying here is he's trying to compare um, evidence-based investing to that third row jump seat. Evidence-based investing looks at everything that's happened in the past. It looks at what's behind us, but it has no idea what's ahead of us. He says it's no different from driving uh, the third row facing backwards. You have an excellent understanding of what has happened, but no concern about what is ahead or what may happen. What happened yesterday is is no guarantee that it will, it will repeat again tomorrow. So again, based on this logic that looking in the past, we cannot project the future. I agree with that 100%, but I think the past has a funny way of repeating itself. And I think the past has a way of teaching us what the probability of something happening again is. So you have in the past, you might have one off events, outlier events that don't ever repeat themselves. But the funny thing is the reason we keep track of history and there is historians is a lot of the stuff that has happened in the past continues to happen into the future. It just might present itself a different way, a detail or two might be adjusted. But it is sort of like a repeating cycle. So yeah, it's true to say what has happened yesterday is no guarantee it will happen in the past. But again, we can we can pinpoint what has happened in the past to make educated guesses on what will happen in the future. So far, the this part of the article, I, I mean, is, is all opinions and I'm not going to agree or disagree or bash him on this. But here's where here's where it gets juicy for me. I'm going to read the rest of this uh, for you. So it says, evidence-based investors tend to rely heavily on index funds, pointing to their past performance versus active funds as the reason to avoid active management. So I already have a feeling, and again, this is nothing wrong with what he's saying, but there, there's going to be biases kicked in and kicking in here. So I'm assuming uh, this formidable asset management is going to be some kind of uh, financial advising company. Um, and he is the chief investment officer for this company. So, yeah, he's going to want to say that active management is better. Again, he could be saying this with the full on belief that he believes active management is better. And I could sit here and say index fund investing is better. That doesn't make him right or me wrong or or him wrong and me right. It's just a matter of opinion until you start to introduce evidence to both sides of the story. So he says Passive investing has a fatal flaw that active investing avoids. Boy, I've heard this a million times. If I can just, what's that saying? If I have a nickel for every time I hear this, I'd be a very rich man. Namely, for a group of investors with a singular fixation on low cost, there is no consideration of price. I already know where this is going. This is going to price discovery. Index funds ruin price discovery. 
that's the opinion. So he talks about how his favorite show is The Price is Right, and it combines skill, luck, and wagering, not to mention Giant Wheel. Yeah, let's compare investing to a game show like that. Um, so here's the, the big part, I think, of the article that I'm about to get angry at, and it says, um, in general, for passive investors, there is no right price for any security. In the index, since every price is right, companies declare bankruptcy, but it's still in the index. Price is right, you buy it. Company Company's only product appears to be a CAD rendering of a cool-looking vehicle made by an intern, <clears throat> Fisker. Um, price is right, buy it. Stock price soars 20% on a stock split. Price is right, buy it. His argument is index funds have to buy everything. So uh, whether it's GameStop or it's... I don't know, name name the company, the index fund is buying it up, right? He continues to say that every dollar that flows into an index fund is invested in a basket of stocks in the index that day. Those are the rules. It's the simplest algorithm ever. You get the idea. Index fund investing is predictable on the idea that someone will own a basket of securities simply because it's cheap and someone else will buy the basket when the investor needs to sell. So he goes on to say, and this is where I think it's funny, uh, the basket is undiversified as it's ever been, with the top five names accounting for almost 25% of its value. Are these great companies? Most would say so. Are they worth the elevated multiples versus the other 495 in which they trade? That is a different story. He goes on to say, the system works wonderfully until it does not. Since the end of the financial crisis flows into index Exchange-traded funds, ETFs, and mutual funds have almost totaled $2 trillion. The lion's share has been at the expense of oh, poor, poor actively managed. At the expense of actively managed funds, which have lost over $1.7 trillion. I see the narrative here, but I'm going to keep going. All right, so I just want to give you guys his final, uh, his the last paragraph of this article. I'm not going to read the whole article, but this is the uh, sort of to paraphrase his belief about evidence-based investing. So he says, I believe evidence-based investing is like an accident waiting to happen. It's what happens when you drive from the third row looking backward. Conversely, the job of active manager is to take the wheel, anticipate the bends in the road, and make rational decisions based on the relative risk and reward the manager views at the security level. Does it always work? No. However, it seems more prudent than looking in the wrong direction. And you guys know I'm going to unpack this last paragraph. So he seems to have the argument that um, index investing and evidence-based investing is always looking in the past, but active management can look into the future. Kathy Wood, she knows the future. She's going to look into the future. She's going to tell us what happens in the future. She's going to come back into present form and then make the stock picks. That's what active management does. Well, here's a little bit of what active management is since 1980. So since 1980, one out of every 20 actively managed funds have beaten the S&P 500. That sounds awfully like 5% of active management beats the S&P 500. So the S&P 500, which Adam says is overweighted, it's got the top top five makeup 25% this market cap overweighted overpriced index that is forced to buy everything it's so bad it buys everything yet it beats since 1980 in the last 40 some years it beats 19 out of 20 actively managed funds so let me ask you sir how could that be how could this overpriced passive backwards looking fund how can it beat active management we first need to understand 
how the market is comprised. So the market comprises of all these different institutional fund managers, a little bit of retail uh, investors as well. But just to make things sim simple, we'll say the market is comprised of managers. So you have the good managers and then you have the bad managers. All those managers combined make up the average of the market return minus the fees. So let's say in one year you have 50 good managers and you have 50 bad managers, but the median is or the average is going to be 50. The problem is those managers charge a fee. Okay, so they're not free like the S&P 500. And I don't want to say the S&P 500 not, is not free. I take that back. It costs me 15 cents per thousand invested. So it's not free. I don't want to misspeak and have these uh, actively managed come after me so it's not free of course you want to be a long-term investor so you're going to find an approach you're going to find an approach that helps you build a diversified long-term portfolio the problem with that is most of the fees on that active management is going to cost an arm and a leg okay so recently i was helping set up uh, my dad's 401k i was surprised by the funds that i saw in there every single fund in his 401k was actively managed every single fund in there and the cheapest expense ratio that I found was 95 basis points. That's 0.95%. And my expected return for his portfolio is going to be the market return minus the active management fees. Because essentially what I put him in were funds that were as broadly diversified as I could find. Some of them had only 50 holdings. I tried to stay away from those. And I went for funds that had at least a couple of hundred holdings in them. It's hard to do with active management. Most active management is between 50 and 150, but I did my best. But I was really disappointed in the selection of funds that we had. Anyways, not to get too much off topic. So the sum of the market is the is the returns of all the managers minus fees. One of the managers is above average. The next one is going to be below average. But the sum of all of them make up the returns of the market minus the fees. So the reason the S&P 500 has beaten 19 out of 20 actively managed funds since 1980 is the fees it has nothing to do with looking back and and guessing what's right what's wrong part of it does because the s p 500 doesn't care what's right what's wrong it buys everything uh, most likely if you're picking what's right what's wrong you're going to pick wrong and and you're going to lose out to the market but the biggest reason the market can do this is the fees. The problem with active management continues to be the fees. You can't buy and hold something long term where you have high turnover, high fees, and you have managers involved. When you have managers involved, there's egos involved. There's managers that come and go, managers leave, managers get hot, managers get cold. There's too much human element to it. And anytime human emotions come into the picture and you make decisions based on emotions and not the evidence chances are you're going to underperform the market so i don't mean to be so critical here on mr eagleston i'm sure he has his convictions about active management and i have mine uh on on index funds so i just thought that was an interesting article i'd share with you guys it really um sometimes i really get bothered by this stuff and sometimes i just say you know some people just have less knowledge than others, and I have to accept that as as fact. I'm not trying to sound like, you know, I, I'm a know-it-all because I'm definitely not. And 
The market works in funny ways. It it really humbles you at times. This is growth. This is value. This is the barometer for today. Uh, this is Friday, March 12th. Guys, the rotation started. So if you're still on that gravy train of riding tech to the moon, riding growth to the moon, I think you're going to be hugely disappointed. If you think you can pick stocks, you're going to be hugely disappointed. Buy the index fund. Buy as broad-based as you can. Put a little bit into value if you can. If you can't, stick with the blend. Keep this stuff simple because just like in the past 40 years, I can look behind and say 19 out of 20 actively managed funds underperformed the S&P 500. I can look 40 years ahead and say 19 out of 20 actively managed funds will underperform the S&P 500. That's all I have for you guys. Thank you so much for listening and watching this week's update. Um, Again, I thought it was really interesting to share some of that stuff with you. Um, If you guys are interested uh, in becoming private members, uh, check out the links down below. uh, Help support the channel. I'd really appreciate it. Also, please consider subscribing to the YouTube channel. Uh, Making sure you like all these videos, guys, helps me uh, really get the videos out. If you're listening on the podcast, leave me a review. Uh, If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, um, go out there and write me a review. I'd really appreciate that. I'm actually going to start reading these reviews live on air. So I do encourage you guys, if you're listening to the Mookie Finance Show podcast, um, make sure you leave that review. People have already started giving me ratings and reviews on the podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and actually read one of the the reviews. So, so far we have seven ratings, which is pretty cool. So here's a review from uh, dhicks12. Awesome podcast and YouTube channel. I like the way you break down the different index funds. You make it easy to understand for a beginner investor like me. Thank you. I wish you much success with your content. Well, thank you, DHICS12. I really appreciate the review. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do my best in trying to explain to beginner investors some of the some of the pitfalls to avoid, some of the mistakes to avoid, and really try to introduce you to the best strategy long term. Now, again, that could be only my opinion, and you might not believe so. So I can't change your mind. I'm not going to try to argue with you to change your mind. I'm just going to tell you my opinions. You take that as you see fit. But thank you so much for that kind review. And if you guys want your review read here live on the YouTube channel and on the podcast show, make sure you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever the heck you're listening. Uh, If you guys are watching on YouTube, drop a comment. This one I'm going to highlight from Gary. I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name, sir. I don't want to butcher that live on air here. But um, he said, great channel, great investing philosophy. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. I'm also considering adding FISVX to my asset allocation based on French's research. I'm only about 13 to 16 years away from retirement and wondering if that is a long enough investment horizon to add a dedicated small cap value fund. Wish I knew about all this when I was 24. Wow, what a powerful comment from Gary right there. Again, I I try not to give uh, personal financial advice just because I'm not a financial advisor. Uh, But yeah, 13 to 16 years is tricky. So one of Eugene Fama's famous quotes is uh, when somebody would question him on on the value premium or on the size premium and say, well, you know, in the past 10 years, in the past 15 years, it hasn't been true. And he would typically say, well, you're not patient enough. You have to wait longer and uh, yeah sometimes you know Jerry it can take 30 40 50 years uh, to really see 
the premium uh, payoff. So yeah, I think 13 to 16 is kind of difficult. Uh, it's a tight time horizon. Uh, like I mentioned in my comment, uh, you know, you can try a smaller exposure, five to 10%. Um, if you can handle, if you have the risk tolerance and uh, more importantly, if you have the risk capacity at this point in your life. Um, and most of all, you're going to need to have luck on your side to be able to pull it off in a 13 to 16 year time frame. But like he said, yeah, for those 24, 25, 30 year olds who have a 30, 35 year time horizon, uh, not only does the risk look better for you and your risk tolerance hopefully should be higher, but you also have the best thing working for you, which is the time. Um, small cap value doesn't do well in every decade. In the past three decades, it's only it's only been the best performing asset class out of one of those three decades. So in 30 years, it's only had one decade of being the best performing. So it's not an asset class that will always do well. Uh, but when it does well, it typically outperforms by about two, two and a half percent over the S&P 500, uh, which is really impressive uh, when you take it out to a bigger scale of 30, 40 years. What a difference in outperformance that could mean for the overall value of your portfolio. Thanks again, guys. I appreciate every single one of you. And as always, remember, move obstacles, keep investing.